0: Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. This morning we meet a very interesting character, the one who has um, been somewhat controversial in the history of the church, a man by the name of Simon Magus. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 24 of Acts chapter 8. I'd like to ask Bob Mina, if you'd pray for the ministry of the Word, after it is read. Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 17. And then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you, ha- you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let us pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that have been preached this morning by your Chuck. You we know that this is a challenging verse Lord, uh, we also know that you will not be mocked, and that the Holy Spirit will work mightily in our hearts to get clear understanding of your words precepts. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts this morning, that we would receive these words in truth, and that uh, your word would go out not just from this pulpit, Father, but throughout our land, throughout the world, preaching the good news and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. The Roman Catholic Church holds that its head The Roman bishop, the Pope, is a direct descendant spiritually from the Apostle Peter. In recent years, the men who have um, held that position have had a a high degree of outward respectability. As far as their inward nature, we, we leave that to God to judge. But in times past, those who held the office of the Pope were by no means either inwardly or outwardly respectable. And in the years leading up to the Reformation, the Papacy was uh, held among a group of families that I often refer to as the Papal Mafia. Families that traded cardinalates and Papacies, the um, de Medicis, the Piccolominos, the Della Roveras, and the most notorious of them, at least according to Showtime, the, the Borgias. Rodrigo Borgia was Pope Alexander VI, now he made no pretense of holiness. He was a wicked man, he was a powerful man, he was a wealthy man. Nor did he try to hide the fact that he had many children. Uh, his most infamous son, César, was uh, murderous. He had assassinated a number of people. He would kill a man for simply looking upon Caesar's sister, Lucretia. He became a cardinal, the cardinal of Valencia. Lucretia, a very dubitable character herself, who was married a number of times, a third time to the Duke of Ferrara. Their son was named Ippolito. And he is the subject of a book that I found, I think, at the great, uh, large, huge book sale down at Macalester Square one year. It's called The Cardinal's Hat. And I think maybe I bought a book because of its cover. But it turned out to be a very interesting book. It's an account book of the expenses incurred by a man whose goal was to achieve the red cap of the Cardinalate, to be named a Cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. This was Ippolito, the son of Lucretia Borgia, the grandson of Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI. Ippolito did manage to become Cardinal of Ferrara. At the same time, he was the Archbishop of Milan and of Lyon, and he was the Abbot of Jumiege and St. Medard. He had not yet even been ordained a priest. This book outlines all of the expenses that a cardinal had to have in his daily life, but also the amount of money that it took to become an abbot, an archbishop, a cardinal. He never quite made it to the top. He was never made a pope. Buying and selling of spiritual offices, rampant in the Roman Catholic Church, and probably one of the primary causes of the Protestant Reformation. Now, we believe that the Protestant Reformation was of course caused by God and the Holy Spirit, but the, the temporal causes, the worldly causes, were the fact that the nations of Europe were being bled dry so that the men of the Piccolomino family, the, the Borgia family, the de' Medici family, the Delo Rivera's, could buy and sell religious offices, their goal being that top office, the papacy. Well, The name of this practice is simony, the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices, named after the character that we meet in our passage today, Simon, who is known historically as Simon Magus or Simon the Magician. And Simon is a very interesting character. We see here the the facts of the case that he offers money for the ability to grant the Holy Spirit to others. Now Simon was a magician. We read earlier that he was called the great power of God, that he amazed people with his abilities, his magical skills. And no doubt, as was common in that time, he made a great deal of money from this ability. And what he saw here was an investment. He would give the apostles money for this ability that they had. And they would give him the ability from which he would make more money Well, that is how it has been interpreted throughout history and why the buying and selling of spiritual offices is called simony. And we might wonder, as we read the history, there's there's an excellent book by a man named E.R. Chamberlain, and it's called The Bad Popes. And it gives a great history of the popes leading up to the Reformation, and it gives you a, a historical understanding about why the people of Europe, in Germany, in France, in Switzerland, in England were so ready to throw off the yoke of Rome because of the corruption that had been engendered by this buying and selling of offices. But did the Reformation cure the church of simony? Well, the practice of buying ecclesiastical offices continued sadly in the nations of the Reformation. The 30 years war that was fought primarily in Germany was fought between Catholics and Protestants, or or so we think. We think it was a religious war. But in fact, Catholic France allied itself with Protestant Sweden so that it might fight Catholic Habsburg and save Protestant Saxony. In other words, the various religious views kind of coalesced, and they were not fighting because of their religion, but rather because of their politics. And in all of this, the buying and selling of bishoprics was a major factor of the politics of Europe. Simony was not ended by the Reformation. In the Church of England, the buying and selling of high ecclesiastical office was rampant. It was as rampant as it was in the Roman Catholic Church. It did diminish simony late in the modern era. We don't see much of it now. And we'd like to think that maybe we don't do it anymore because we're holier than our ancestors. But the reason is, in fact, that the people of the Western world have become less religious. And less and less money is actually going into the churches. Which means there's less and less money to be had with high ecclesiastical office. They go into politics now instead. And so simony is really a condition of the heart. We, we name it after this man, but this idea of being able to manipulate God is of the essence of pagan religion. And that we can somehow make God work for us by our money, by, by, by donating more money, by dedicating pews or stained glass windows in a church. Somehow we can have God on our side. And so the heart attitude of simony hasn't left because sin has not left our hearts. And in the modern church, though, we, we can really hardly imagine a man going to a church, especially a Baptist church, and saying, I- I'm going to offer you $100,000 if you'll make me pastor. figure I can recoup that in 17 years. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, what? You know, no, nobody does that sort of thing. But do pastors do pastors get calls from their charges? to go and pastor other churches? And are not those other churches usually larger and wealthier? In in other words, is there not somewhat of the same thing going on? We don't don't call it simony anymore. But does money still have an influence in the pastoring of God's people? Well, yes, it does. Sadly, it it very much does. And I, I think we can even look back to, a, to the ancient era, to a time that we tend to denigrate now as being Roman Catholic, but to the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Now one of the canons of the Council of Nicaea was that no elder was allowed to leave his church, nor was any other church allowed to call an elder from another church. Because it was believed that when men were raised up from the midst of the congregation to pastor, to oversee that congregation, that that was a life office. That that was a responsibility before God. And that that man would have an additional burden in his judgment. Now that isn't to say that no man should leave a pastorate for any reason. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that in its earliest days the church had an attitude of stability the buying and selling of ecclesi- ecclesiastical offices hasn't, hadn't really kicked in yet. It, it would soon after AD 325. But it, it is to say that, that our heart attitude is what should be laid bare by our passage today. Not, not so much the, the notorious practice of simony by Alexander VI and the Borgia family, but rather the attitude of our own heart. For example, you know I, I've even heard as a pastor now going on 30 years, you know, men or women saying, well, you know, I, I gave to this church and, and this is the way it should be because I've, I've given my money to this church and this is how I want it to be. Well, well, frankly, the response to that is you never gave it. You're still holding on to it, right? And, and you're thinking that because you gave it, you, you have some say in, in the in the work of God. Well, if, if any of you have that attitude, you, you, you visitors notice that we don't have a passing of a tray. And in fact, we hide the offering box. <laughs> it's through that door. <laughs> I mean, money is a, is a dangerous thing to the ministry of the gospel. We're told that in scripture. You know, Paul says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And when the issue of salary and benefit packages comes into the pastorate, can any, can any good come from that? Now certainly I, I don't advocate a poor pastorate. I mean, I don't advocate uh, a vow of poverty. But, but I do think that a case can be made, in our day especially, for what is called bivocational ministry or what we may call in reference to Paul, tent making. It's not very popular. It's, it's said to detract from the ministry of the word. That the man, the pastor, if he has another job, doesn't have the time to devote to his study and to his preparation of sermons. Paul did, but of course that was Paul. You know, we, you know that was Paul. We don't, we don't use him as an example. No, I think maybe we should. Because he, he specifically told the Corinthians that he refused to benefit financially from them. He would not allow them. Somehow, Corinth being a commercial city, which it is, it's right in the heart of the trade that went through that western or eastern side of the Mediterranean. He recognized that these were the type of people for whom money meant something. And if he took a salary, if he took something from them, they would want to hold it over him. He wouldn't allow it. And so I think that that bivocational ministry should not merely be the hallmarks of a poor church, of a church that is unable to fully support its pastors, but rather it should be a a mark of the church of God. I think it should be a way in which, and, and, and maybe I'm just thinking out loud here, but a way in which the heart attitude of simony might be at least held in check within our churches. That our pastors Would it it be better that our pastors stay up late after working a day someplace out in the world and then stay up late studying the scriptures and preparing their sermon, or would it be better that tempting them into the love of money, they might wander away from the faith entirely? Is it possible that pastors in our churches today refrain from saying difficult things, teaching difficult doctrines, and rebuking sin because they're afraid they might lose their salary, that they might lose their position? I, I think it's quite possible. I think if we don't realize that, we're both naive and unaware of the insidious nature of sin within the heart of even believers. Okay? It, it, it happens in the world. You get to a certain position in corporate life where you, you, you have to toe the line. Because that next promotion is being dangled in front of you. And if you see something happening that is illegal. You keep your mouth shut. Or you'll lose your position. You'll lose your benefits. And you have three children in college. And, and you have a, you know a wife who's pregnant. And you have medical bills. And you have a mortgage. And they've got you. Money has got you. And I do think... That, that is the state of many churches today and one of the reasons why the gospel and the scriptures in their in their stark purity words like we hear from Peter in this passage aren't spoken anymore sin is allowed to remain in our churches without rebuke people are allowed to continue in their sin without repentance excommunication and discipline are all but unknown in Western Protestant churches, evangelical churches. How much of it, if we could could see as God sees, how much of that is because the pastors hold their positions too dearly. Simony is a condition of the heart. Simon himself is a matter of great conjecture and argument because we we read in, in verse 13 of Acts chapter 8 after Philip has been preaching and even Simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued on with Philip as he observed with wonder the great miracles and signs taking place. Here's the question. Was Simon a believer? Did Simon lose his salvation? We might put it this way. Did, Did Simon stumble... Did Simon fall, or was Simon ever really standing? I mean, those are basically the only options I can come up with. And those are the ones that are, that are debated uh, throughout church history with regard to Simon, because his condition applies to the thoughts of many of us as believers. You know, I, I, have I lost my salvation? Yeah, what I just thought, what I just did, that, that's not consonant with being a Christian. Or maybe someone else in the church, and and this is unlikely, but maybe someone else came up to you and said, you know, may your silver perish with you. That would have been a good answer uh, for the person who said, hey, I gave my money. Uh, My answer was, how much did you give? I'll write you a check. We'll just give it back. Yeah, we'll just give it back to you, and then we're square. You know, because you never gave it in the first place, so I'll just give it back. But I should have said, you know, scripturally, thus saith Peter, May your silver, may your check perish with you, or may your check bounce with you. Well, one view of Simon's soul is what I call the the insecurity of the saints. Simon believed and was baptized, and that's salvation, plain and simple. Now that's I'm speaking in terms of the people who hold this view. I mean, he says he believed and he was baptized, so we just take that as he was saved. His sin was a loss of salvation. For Peter speaks of his heart in the darkest of terms. For your heart is not right before God. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. That is tough. Okay, it's, it's, you read those words and you, it's hard to conclude that this is a believer we're talking about. Your heart is not right with God. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. That's not salvation, folks. And so though Peter believed and was baptized and was saved... His sin cost him his salvation, but he repented of his sin and sought Peter's intercession. Verse 24, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, this is the view that is held by many in the church, and that is you can lose your salvation, but you can restore it. That's why I call it the insecurity of the saints. Sometimes it's yo-yo theology. You're up, you're down, you're up, you're down. You know, you can lose your salvation. What really matters is that by the, the moment you die, you're in. Up to that point, you're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. Okay? Now, they often go to um, Hebrews chapter 6, and many of you are familiar with the passage there that talks about those who have tasted the word, tasted of the spirit, but have fallen away. Look, that, that, to them, proves that you can lose your salvation. But they should read on. Okay? Because that very passage says, for those people, it is impossible to renew them unto repentance. In other words, if you're going to hold that view, you have to hold it consistently. Once you've lost your salvation, you can't get it back. But I don't don't hold that view. But nor do I hold the next view, and and that is the once saved, always saved view of, of many Baptist denominations. The work of salvation is simply to believe. And once you've believed... It doesn't matter what you do after that, you're in. So we read that Simon believed and he was baptized and therefore he was saved. And so what happened afterwards, well now that may have cost him some rewards in heaven. And certainly as Paul says, uh, when when the fire of judgment comes upon Simon, much of his works will be burned up, but he himself will be saved. Yet as one passing through the fire... And so the the once saved, always saved camp says that he believed, he was saved, he sinned. Yes, he did sin. He He sinned grievously. But that doesn't matter. In fact, they don't even need to view verse 24 as a sincere repentance. Because I don't, personally. We'll look at that in a moment. But it is not necessary for the believer to repent. Because salvation is a gift of God that is without repentance. He will never take it away. Okay. Once you're in, no matter how you live, you're in. Well, I don't think this is true either. I think it's a very dangerous teaching. I think on the one hand, you have a tremendous amount of insecurity that is very dangerous and damaging to people of sensitive conscience. Here, you have a a false sense of security that is very deceiving for people whose lives give no indication of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And yet their pastor's... And their family remind them of a time when they were six or seven or eight years old. You know, the time that you wrote in the front of your Bible, you know, I believed on this day. And they're told, you're fine. No, no worries. You're in. And, and they take comfort. Because some of the sins that these people commit lead to their death. And they take comfort. And, and you see this at funerals. They, they take comfort on something that a child of... Of 27, who just recently died, may have said as a child of seven, giving no evidence since then that any work was done in that person's heart. Now, I, I think what we have here is more difficult than that. I think those, are, those two answers are too simplistic. I think what we have here is, is a real life example of Jesus' parable of the sower. Now you remember that parable, it was, it's very commonly known. There were basically uh, four different plots of soil that received the seed from the sower's hand. One plot um, was uh, the birds immediately ate up the seed. Now now everybody who's ever preached or commented on the parable of the sower has acknowledged that that group of people were not saved. Okay, The, the, the birds of the air represent the devil they represent unbelief, basically. And, and what you have there is, is scoffers will come and deride the gospel. And the hearer, it will never get past their ears. It will never get to their heart. The fourth plot, of course, are those who bore forth a fruit. Uh, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Nobody disagrees that they were saved. So one in four, we got them. It's, it's two in the middle that, we troub- that we're troubled with. You know, the one with the, with the rocky soil... No, no depth of, of loam there, and they, they strike out a root and they quickly grow, but the sun comes up and they wither and die. Later, we're told that perse- persecution is what causes them to fall away from the faith. The third one is the weeds or the, the seeds that grow in among the weeds. And they too also take root and they grow, but the weeds choke out the nutrients that they need to live and they also die. They bear no fruit. That's one common denominator about those middle two plots. They bear no fruit. We're told by Jesus that that third plot represents those for whom the cares of this world choke out the gospel, the fruit of the gospel. Now, I'm not very optimistic about plots two and three, personally. We're told that by our fruit we will be known. We're told that a saltwater well cannot bring forth fresh water. Okay, That a thorn bush cannot bring forth figs. In other words, we're told that if a work of God is done within us, then we will bring forth the fruit in consonant with that. The fruit of repentance, we're told. John tells his audience, bring forth the fruit of repentance. And then he gives examples to the soldiers and and to the tax collectors, how this will look in your day-to-day life. How this will manifest itself in, in other words uh, and at the danger of establishing a legalistic pattern that we call Christian and I don't want to do that but I do have to say that according to the scriptures there ought to be something showing that there ought to be something that indicates that a work of God has been done in our hearts that we are in fact regenerate and and if it can be said of us by our actions that we are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity, then I would have to say that the seed fell on soil either in pots two or three. No fruit. And I would say no salvation. Now now this is difficult, especially for family members who who want to believe that a profession of faith once made was made sincerely, was made truly. Truly. But, but I think it's, it's very difficult for us to, to grasp the possibility that a verbal profession of faith can be made without an inward regeneration of the heart. Now, fortunately, it's not up to us to judge. God knows those who are His. Our part comes in as we are dealing with people as we are dealing with professing Christians or people who say oh yeah I I walked forward or I made a profession or I was baptized or worse I was raised in a church and we're supposed to accept that as their Christianity and they will be quite offended if we do not and I'm sure you've all encountered that but are we doing them a favor if we treat them as Christians when there is No fruit. John Calvin interprets Peter's words regarding Simon as being in the bondage of iniquity. He said, the whole heart is kept tightly in Satan's grasp. He is the greatest deceiver that the world has ever seen, that the universe has ever seen. He masquerades, we're told, as an angel of light. Is it conceivable that he might deceive us into thinking that by murmuring words, by saying a prayer, by walking forward, by going under the water, we are good with God, that all is well with our soul? Is it possible that he might deceive us into into believing that there there does not have to be any sign of repentance? Well, let me tell you there is. Because there is a very popular teaching in American evangelicalism that teaches that you need not accept Jesus as your Lord. You need only accept Him as your Savior. Now this teaching is advocated by some very, very well-known television evangelists and pastors. It's very popular. And why wouldn't it be? It's, It's really very easy. All I have to do is believe. There's no requirement. Because they teach any requirement would be a works salvation. But we would teach counter to that. That it is not a works salvation. It is merely the natural manifestation of grace. If the Holy Spirit dwells within a person's heart. An, un- an unholy life cannot be the standard of that person's life. Now. I think we can say it was not well with Simon's soul and his money didn't do him any good. I think if we look at the parable of the sower, we learn the condition of the world in which we minister. And I say we, because whether we are speaking from a pulpit or whether we're talking to people at work or in our families, our children, we're still dealing with the sowing of the seed. And any sower worth his salt, well, he wouldn't sow salt. Any sower worth his metal would prepare the soils as best he could. And any sower would understand that certain soils in certain locations are not likely to bring forth good fruit. My father-in-law was a dairy farmer. And I worked on the farm for one summer. And that was enough to convince me to go to college or to stay in college. That's hard work. But there was a great deal of preparation that was made to the soil before the seed was ever sown. And the seed was not sown indiscriminately. It was very carefully placed in the field that was plowed. However, because of the broadcast nature of sowing, some of the seed fell into the weeds. Some of these seeds fell into the berm of the gravel road that cut through my father-in-law's property. And this parable was like an annual reminder because you would see the corn sprout up and die except in the field okay so we we have that even though we don't have many farmers among us anymore we have this as a church to realize that you know the birds of the air we we ought to take care how we listen the scripture tells us take care how you listen it doesn't mean take care what you hear it takes it means take care of what you let in and we should be teaching our children this as well as ourselves that there is much out there in the world that constitutes demonic birds, basically. That even as we read the scripture, we're being led, we're being tempted, we're being, we're being slowly desensitized to the Holy Spirit. And that seed is being eaten up before it ever has a chance to germinate. Shallow root. Wow. I think that's one word that describes American churches. Shallow. We, we sure don't work the soil very well. We don't worry too much about planting roots deeply. As long as our children walk forward at a VBS, we're happy. You know, we're, we're ready to plan the rest of their life, their college, their career, and everything else. Not, not their spiritual health. Not that they should know the doctrines of Scripture. Not that those roots should be nourished, put a little miracle grow on them or something. No, just we got, you know, the seeds planted, everything's good. You know, uh, what is that, Proverbs 26? You know, when they're old, they won't depart from it. <laughs> That's not what that means. We, we should be caring about the strength of the root system in those in our midst who make profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That should not be the end of our involvement, either as a family or as a church family. Because when they go out in the world, when they, when they are ridiculed, and, and temptation is nothing more than that anymore. It's just ridicule. But it's enough now. Satan doesn't need to kill us. He can mock us, and that's enough. Our children go off to colleges, secular universities, where their religion is mocked, and before you know it, they have no religion because the seed was planted among the weeds and no root had taken any any stronghold in the scriptures. The, uh, The cares, the choking cares of this world, well, I think that may address more of us older people those of us in the workaday world, those of us who have concerns about paying our mortgages and and paying for our children to go to college and all of these other things. How do we make sure those weeds do not choke out our fruit? I think by attending to the means of grace that God has given us, the reading of his word, to prayer, to meditation, and certainly to the Lord's day. I I think the writer of Hebrews was, was, was well Well uh, put to say, do not neglect the assembling of one another together, as is the habit of some. For where else do we have the mutual encouragement of people of like mind? You know, I know that every single child in the public school system has a Christian teacher. I'm told that. I mean, every single parent whose children are in the public schools, their their children's teachers are Christians. I don't know why they call them public schools. Just call them Christian schools. You know, No, it's not the case, but doesn't that show you how easily we are deceived? Maybe even want to be deceived? We don't want to do the work of maintaining the soil, strengthening our roots, warding off the weeds, and actually bearing fruit, not only for God's glory, but for our good. Sadly, many of us will turn out to be Simons, many of our children. Many of our children maybe already have. And we lament the fact that though they started well, as as the parable goes, though they started well, there was no root in them. But then there's the fruitful harvest. Now, no matter what you think of that parable, whether you agree with me or not, I think you will agree that the intent of the Lord is that we bear fruit. The intent of the sower is that he have a return, that that single seed that he puts in the ground will give him a multitude of seeds in the various ears of corn on that stalk or in that, in that kernel of wheat. And as he plants a field, he's looking at a return that is 30, 60, 100-fold more than he had planted. That's his intent. And it would make, it would make a, a ludicrous sense of that parable to say that the sower intended for the, for the seed to, to spring up and die. Or that the sower intended for the seed to grow among weeds and then be choked out and bear no fruit. That's a waste of money. That's a waste of livelihood. That's a waste of the gospel. So our intent, our intent should be intentionally that when we sow the seed in our children's lives, in our congregation, amongst one another, or even in the workplace, that it's not just dropping a track in front of somebody who walks by. Or, or, or sticking it in the, in the candy you give away at Halloween. I'm, I'm not for that. That's not sowing the seed. That, that is mindlessly throwing out the word. We should have more reverence for the word, more honor to God, and more concern for their souls. Because if they are like Simon, I believe, was. If they do believe and then fall away. I believe in most cases they have been inoculated against the true regenerative power of the gospel. We have made their situation worse, not better. So what are the signs of salvation? I mean, all this whole sermon probably sounds like I'm about to give you a list. This is what it looks like, folks. You know, if you don't have these marks, you're not a Christian. I'm not going to do that. I think that's very dangerous to do. I think that's legalism. I think it sets up man as the judge. I think it will change from culture to culture and from age to age. When things are not acceptable outside the doors, we make them unacceptable inside. When they are acceptable outside, we make them acceptable inside. So does a true sign of salvation mean an absence of sin? Well, certainly not. In fact, scripture says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And it would be rather ironic that a mark of salvation would be self-deception. No, it's not an absence of sin, but it's a presence of repentance. It's a a desire within our hearts to repent of our sin, to confess our sin, to take our sin before God through Jesus Christ, our mediator. How about a hatred of self? See, clearly, Simon Magus was not a self-hater. Should we hate ourselves? To be true Christians. Well I, I don't think that's right either. In fact I, I don't think it's possible. Apart from a, a seriously dangerous psychosis. For any human being to hate himself. But rather instead of hatred of self. There should be a greater love of Jesus Christ. It, it's not so much that we put ourselves down. In a self-abnegating sort of way. Flagellating ourselves with cat o tails And denying ourselves all pleasantries. So that we can be good Christians. That never worked. Paul even says, that, that has the appearance of godliness, but it's a powerless against the sins of the flesh. It's love to Jesus that wards away selfishness. And what about Simon? Did he repent? He says, Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And many commentators want to see in that repentance but why does he throw it back on Peter and John? Well, I think he did so because he was still a pagan. And while he was a very powerful magician in his own right, he had just encountered two men that were more powerful than him, Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus Christ. They were so powerful that he wanted what they had so that they could, so he could be powerful like they were. That he could give out this powerful spirit that was manifesting itself by the laying on of their hands. He was a pagan. He was thinking of a hierarchy of spirits. You don't go in the pagan world directly to the top. You go through the proper mediators. And that's what Simon was doing. One author says, Simon was terror stricken. That he should have incurred the displeasure of men who seemed to have such power at their command was an awful thought. And so he threw it back on them. They said, pray to the Lord. He said, No, you pray to the Lord for me. Now, now that's that is a very significant mark of either a Christian or not. Okay? Whether you understand that there is but one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. If you still think that you have to go through your pastor, your priest, your bishop, or the pope, or any mediator other than Jesus Christ, then it's very likely you are not a believer. You don't repent. To a priest. You don't even repent to an apostle. You don't repent to a therapist. To a counselor. To a pastor. You repent to Jesus Christ. Who has borne your sin on his cross. He is the only mediator given to us. And it is through him and in his name. That we receive true forgiveness of our sins. So in the end, the final judgment, and the only one that matters, is God's. What may have happened to Simon in eternity, none of us will know until we're there. And he is either there or not there. But I think it is very um, damning to his witness that he was not willing to go to the Lord himself but rather continue to work through a mediator. Let it not be said of us that we, through some false piety, refuse to come to God through Jesus Christ, but rather that we would acknowledge that we are all, in fact, sinners, but God has provided us with one high priest through whom we have repentance and forgiveness, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that we have no need of a mediator who is himself also a sinner, but rather we have a sinless high priest, one who is tempted in all things such as we, and yet without sin, and one who took upon himself our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we would never be tempted to allow any mediator to be insinuated between ourselves, our own soul, and our most holy God, but only Jesus Christ. May it be said of each one of us that when we sinned, we repented. And though we may love ourselves, we love Jesus Christ more. And may it be said of us that he is our only God and mediator. Father, we pray that you would bless us through your word and by your spirit this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction from the letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.